Hello and welcome to the Hacking State podcast. With me today is Nathan Kofnis. Nathan is a faculty in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge. He studies philosophy of biology, uh, ethics, and where they are combined. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So today, uh, we're going to discuss um, an ongoing debate that you were having um, with Kevin McDonald concerning the, I guess, nature or the success of Jews, Jewish people, particularly in the West. Um, and to begin our entry into the discussion, uh, and, and this is an ongoing debate for those listening, so you can go to Nathan's um, uh, webpage and you can see the entire um, chronicles of uh, papers and exchanges that he's had with Kevin McDonald. But in particular, the paper that we're focusing on today is called Still No Evidence for a Jewish Group Evolutionary Strategy. It was published in the Evolutionary um, Journal of Evolutionary Psychological Science uh, in January of 2023. And it is a sort of response to what Nathan is calling the anti-Jewish narrative, which is a, a set of claims that are being proposed by Kevin McDonald in Culture of Critique related to this idea that Jews as a group um, constitute a group evolutionary strategy in terms of their behaviors and traits. Um, and so to get started on that, Nathan, I just wanted to ask you, how did you enter into this debate initially with Kevin McDonald? Well, I first became aware of Kevin McDonald's work when I was a high school student. I was taking classes in an anthropology course at Columbia University as a visiting high school student. And that was where I learned about uh, race and race differences. And I was also um, made aware of Kevin McDonald's ideas about Jews, Judaism being a group evolutionary strategy, which played a role in um, uh, in, Jew in the development of liberalism, multiculturalism. And at the time, I didn't um, really have such a critical reaction to it. I didn't read it that carefully. And I kind of assumed that it was more just a uh, politically incorrect truth that had been censored just because it's politically incorrect. That was just what I assumed without thinking about it, you know, too much. Um, over time, um, and I, I never, um, I, I wasn't taking it that seriously as a model of the world, but just as something that maybe that's part of, part of the puzzle. Uh, and over time, I encountered some facts that kind of made me, question the, these ideas. And when later in around 2016, 2017, I came up with the idea of reading uh, McDonald's book carefully, particularly the, uh, the final book in his trilogy, which is The Culture of Critique, which explains um, major uh, liberal intellectual and political movements in the 20th century as the consequence of a Jewish group evolutionary strategy. So um, saying that uh, movements like uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and Boazian anthropology and so on were 
founded by highly ethnocentric Jews who were either consciously or unconsciously seeking to advance Jewish group interests, and that this is kind of explained as as an, an evolved behavior. So mm-hmm. through either, uh, I, I think McDonald for some reason has some objection to these t- the terms genetic adaptation or cultural adaptation, but uh, whatever he wants to call them. Um, there's some features of Jewish genetics or culture um, that produce people like this, uh, intellectuals. Uh, and on his view, Judaism also has eugenic practices which favor uh, high intelligence and high ethnocentrism. So you end up producing uh, uh, dangerous intellectuals who then fight against the uh, the majority Gentile culture uh, again for uh, to serve Jewish interests. And uh, on closer inspection, I found that uh, a lot of what he was saying, some of it was just made up. Uh, there, there are fake quotes, fake misstatements of fact, uh, but also very serious errors of interpretation, leaving out important facts, just ignoring um not only Jews who are on the other side of these movements, often leading opponents of these movements, right. but uh, uh, also Gentiles who were just as much leaders of the movements that McDonald doesn't like. So just kind of cherry picking Jews, you know, combing through the history books and picking out Jews who are doing something he doesn't like and then spinning a tale about a Jewish group evolutionary strategy, which I I argued uh, wasn't wasn't uh, supported. Mm-hmm. So that I wrote that I guess around 2016 2017 something like that it was published in March 2018, and that generated um, a fair amount of interest um, because McDonald had published his trilogy from 1994 to 1998 and there had been very little academic response there uh there was some controversy after he testified uh on behalf of David Irving in a libel trial so David Irving is a holocaust denier and McDonald doesn't have any expertise on the holocaust not now not then uh, but he testified that well, maybe Irving is is the victim of the Jewish group evolutionary strategy. It was not clear um, how that testimony was was relevant. Uh, in fact, the judge said it wasn't very helpful. But anyway, um, because McDonald had a, a position in a mainstream evolutionary psychology organization, then his involvement in the Irving trial attracted the attention of a journalist, and, and there was a controversy within the evolution, the uh, uh, Human Behavior and Evolution Society, where a number of uh, scholars said that this is not real evolutionary psychology; it's not real science. And um, John Tooby, who's one of the a leading figure in evolutionary psychology, said that they were going to uh, publish a rebuttal 
so that was 23 years ago and right yeah still no rebuttal from from then oh unfortunately john tooby recently passed away a few months ago i think so yeah the, uh, there was no i mean people raised some um some very general problems with his idea like uh, that mm -hmm. mcdonald's theory relies on group selection and group selection right. isn't real which i'm you know, i'm very skeptical of these kinds of sweeping methodological critiques like wh whether franz boaz was motivated by ethnocentric concerns when he denied race differences i mean that that doesn't that hypothesis doesn't really depend on whether or not group selection is is something that happens or um so i think a lot of people who were interested in mcdonald's ideas um were not really convinced by some of these rebuttals and even if you say it, it was true that uh mcdonald's work doesn't um, pass the bar to be taken seriously even if you think that's true um the fact is a lot of people do take it seriously including serious academics like uh, david sloan wilson and uh other people other people um uh, respectable scholars have said that they found something of value in mcdonald's work so uh, i think that it should be given a hearing and uh and so i was the first person to seriously do this uh, and there had been some scattered articles uh, but i was the person to, to do it from an academic perspective publish it in an academic journal and uh then there was a series of back and forth uh, written uh, exchange between mcdonald and me um most of that was not uh, peer-reviewed uh, a lot of it was just on blogs and uh, on ResearchGate but in the end there have been four peer-reviewed uh, papers um, published uh, on my uh, between us so my first the first paper in 2018 then I wrote the anti-Jewish um, narrative in the philosophy journal called Philosophia. McDonald published a reply to me in Philosophia, which was then retracted after a backlash, after one of the editors resigned and the other one was replaced uh, for unclear reasons. And then the, my final uh, written statement, or most likely my final written statement is the paper that you referred to, which is uh, published in Evolutionary Psychological Science still no evidence for Jewish group evolutionary strategy. Hmm. So I wanted to ask you briefly, I mean, I know you brought up that the group evolutionary hypothesis um, just in general is not really needed to deal with the, the points that Kevin McDonald makes in his argument. But it's interesting to me because um, there's almost a mirror image of this in terms of people's explanation for the Holocaust. And um, for those who are not familiar with what, what I'm referring to, I believe Brett Weinstein has a theory that, and he brought this up in his debate with Richard Dawkins, um, 
that the Holocaust itself was a group evolutionary um, like response, uh, essentially, uh, and that genocide in general is a sort of uh, group um, evolutionary behavior. Um, so I just think it's interesting that in both of those cases, you have this um, group evolutionary strategy idea being proposed. Um, do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, the uh, that as an explanation for, uh, I guess, more discrete events? I mean, part of the problem with the Jewish group evolutionary strategy is you end up discussing uh, a, a wide variety of events and behavior over a really long period of time. Um, and so it gets very foggy what exactly you're even explaining. But something like a genocide is, you know, usually very, um, very discreet. So McDonald has, makes similar statements, uh, including about uh, the Holocaust and the German reaction to Jews. Now, when I say that uh, there's no evidence for a Jewish group evolutionary strategy, um, I mean the kind of strategy that McDonald describes, which has manifested in the way that he describes. Not that Judaism can't... I mean, all cultural forms and practices that survive the test of selection are, in some sense, group evolutionary strategies. Mm. Um, like the Jewish practice of, uh, or the practice of many religions of not using birth control. It's not a coincidence that religions that don't use birth control, that say don't use birth control, uh, tend to become like more popular over time. Uh, uh, so that's evolution acting on uh, cultural traits or potentially uh, gene culture co-evolution acting on combination of genetic and cultural traits. Uh, so yeah, so obviously Judaism is in that sense uh, a group evolutionary strategy, but that's just trivial. That's not an interesting thing that uh, McDonald and I would be arguing about. And when groups genocide each other, they're acting on instincts that have been selected over evolutionary time because they serve adaptive functions for the individual, possibly for the group as well. Uh, so I'm not against uh, an evolutionary approach to explaining, you know, behavior or group group behavior or group conflict. Not at all. Mm. Uh, I think there should be an evolutionary approach. But just because there should be an evolutionary approach doesn't mean you can make up anything and then just, you know, um, any story that kind of feels good or feels truthy um, needs to be accepted. You know, right. That's where I object okay so let, let's get into the core tenets of mcdonald's argument um which you are responding to in this paper um the first being um or, or well i guess let's frame the argument first so you have this um sort of recapitulation of mcdonald's view called the the anti-jewish narrative which is sort of the combination of all of these claims that mcdonald's is making um about the nature and behavior of Jews. And um, what are the sort of three main uh, claims 
uh, of the anti-Jewish narrative? Um, well, I, um, I in the anti-Jewish narrative, I, I think I highlighted three claims that I had not really addressed sufficiently in my previous work, um, but uh, they were that uh, Jewish um, ethnocentrism. And so there's a theory that Jews are highly ethnocentric. This is a um, a uh, central tenet of of um, I would call JQism uh, mm. for for Jewish question or anti-Semitism. Right. It's that Jews are working together. They are helping each other. Um, they're rigging the system to favor other Jews. So that's one important aspect of the theory. And McDonald argues that this has a genetic component uh, and that Jews have uh, culture, their cultural features of Judaism that tend to expel those who are less ethnocentric from the group. So over time, they become more and more, they have become more and more ethnocentric. And second point I addressed in that paper that uh, liberal Jews hypocritically uh, advocate for uh, multiculturalism for Gentiles, for America, for, for the West, but not but they advocate the opposite. They advocate racial purity and uh, closed borders for Israel, um, which is based on the extremely uh, distorted um, telling of the facts, uh, which has been really not really not true. Um, and third, that Jews are responsible for liberalism and mass immigration to the United States, uh, that they orchestrated open borders in order to turn America and the West minority white, uh, that without Jews uh, motivated in this way, we would not have the kind of demographic transition that we're experiencing. Right, right. So those are sort of the three three claims um, that you're left with. And you're saying that, you know, rather than focusing on this group evolutionary strategy theory, um, there's a default hypothesis in place, which can be explained by, uh, you know, more directly, well, in some sense, more directly quantifiable traits, the largest one, but not the only one functionally being Jewish intelligence. Um, and then there's a set of other sort of, personality traits and maybe even culturally inherited traits that you think explain the outstanding levels of Jewish success in various, uh, you know, intellectual realms. Right. So one of the reasons that I was the, uh, the only, uh, academic who was able to effectively respond to McDonald is because, uh, I have no problem acknowledging that, Jews are overrepresented in certain activities, that it's not uh, a conspiracy theory to think that Jews are wealthier than, or Jews are overrepresented in Hollywood. Uh, um, but I mean, that people can feel um, sensitive about talking about these facts, but I, I mean, if, if, if you don't, 
if you're not willing to to acknowledge this, then McDonald comes across as the truth teller, and you come across as the 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 lying coward. Right. Uh, so, so how do you explain these facts? Uh, McDonald says, well, Jews have high intelligence, but that they use their intelligence in order to advance the group evolutionary strategy. Whereas I say, uh, yes, you can find a bunch of Jews being liberals or supporting multiculturalism or whatever, uh, but you can find a lot of Jews in uh, in geometry and in nuclear physics and in chess and in poetry and in um, libertarianism uh, and socialism and in communism. And in uh, so the parsimonious uh, explanation is that the same factor or factors that explain Jewish success in chess and physics and uh, and uh, movie making, although Hollywood is a, a kind of a different story, because I'm not saying that there's Jewish networking has never existed ever, and that no one has ever been hired because he was a Jew. I'm not because, uh, and I think ne networks exist in all groups, right? Right. And so there are some instances where um, Jews dominate for cultural reasons that that are that go beyond. Uh, just intelligence or, or these personal personality traits. But when you see very similar levels of representation, and Hollywood is off the charts, like that's at one point, like the heads of all eight major film studios were Jewish. So, uh, I mean, this is difficult to explain um, for, for the same reason that they're overrepresented in, um, in physics, right? Uh, yeah. Well, well, I was going to say, I mean, you have some interesting facts here that, I mean, just get diff very difficult to explain any other reason. One, uh, Jews are 44% of world chess champions, 25% of fields medalists, um, you know, 26% of Nobel laureates in physics, 26% in phy physiology and medicine, almost 40% in economics. I mean... There aren't that many Jews, right? Less than one percent of the world population, even in America, they're only like like what, like two percent, maybe. Um, so, nepotism or whatever kind of network you know benefits there may be doesn't explain all of that. Certainly. Well, uh, I mean, you, let's say Jews are just so conniving that that they are able to infiltrate these important institutions and elevate themselves. But why do they win the Kyoto Prize at exactly the same rate as they win the science Nobels? Yeah. How does, and or why the is it, medals, I mean, and, and, are those and, Well, you can like, say, let's say Jews control the West. Yeah. So they control Sweden, they control uh, Norway, um, and... Um, uh, where's the Fields Medal administer? Uh, where Fields Medal medal is chosen? I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, they control the Fields Medal uh, too, but the Kyoto Prize, which is of a com similar prestige to the Nobel, not quite as famous, but similar, uh, is the the um, it's chosen by Japanese. Are you are you saying Jews have just as much influence over Japan? as they do over the West. And when it comes to the Nobels, 
Jews win in the sciences, but not in the fake fields, peace and literature. So the fields mm. that actually are influenced by politics and potentially nepotism, which are peace and literature, because they, they just give them to people who, you know, the committee likes, Jews win that, those at far lower rates than mm. in physics. So that's the opposite of what the nepotism hypothesis uh, predicts. And with chess, again, very difficult. How do you, with all the nepotism in the world, you know, the average Joe is not going to be a chess champion. Um, so you know, difficult to, to see how, and Jews have been nearly one half of world chess champions. And during the, uh, in the Soviet Union, when there was a very intense uh, government effort to identify and cultivate chess talent with no, with, with one goal, which was to win, Jews were half of the Soviet chess team. Uh, why? And now it, it, Jews aren't win. Now uh, uh, Magnus uh, Carlson is winning. So why why did Jews give up and allow this Gentile to win? I, you know, none of these facts are uh, are very easy to explain on, on the oh, oh, Okay, so there's there's sort of two operations I want to perform um, before we leave touching on this point. One is addressing the um, whatever contention there may be over uh, differences in, tel in intelligence among groups. Um, and then the secondly is to actually get past that and to sort of sort out the uh, overrepresentation. So the first being like just acknowledging that Jewish intelligence is much higher than Gentiles on average. And secondly, that it's very likely has a genetic component. I want to get that out of the way because some people listening might not even be aware of that or if they're they're aware of it in a stereotypical way is, you know, Jews are smart, but they're not really um, maybe aware of like the magnitude of the difference or how it affects things at the far tails of the distribution. Um, and so, you know, your opinion, obviously, in the paper is, a, and I think it's pretty well represented in the data, is that, yes, there is this um, genetic component to Jewish intelligence. It seems that Jews have been selected for higher intelligence over many generations. Um, and this gives them almost a standard deviation, which is uh, standard deviation would be 15 points. They're estimated to be 10 to 12 points in IQ above the average Gentile, correct? That's right, yeah. The average yeah. white white European Gentile, yeah. Right, so if the average is 100, Jews are estimated to be Ashkenazim specifically, 110 to 112. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I don't know uh, how much of a background your audience has in uh, IQ and uh, population differences, but um, so IQ is, well, a measure of intelligence, uh, um, basically, um, if you give people a battery of tests, uh, measuring different cognitive abilities, their performance on different abilities is highly correlated with each other. So if you're good at 
um, pattern recognition, they're good at analogies and um, they're good at memorizing digits and so on. These, all, these things are all correlated. You can be much better at one thing than the other, but they're all positively correlated. And so your IQ score um, is supposed to be kind of the best representative of your um, number of your performance across a variety of tests. So it's the best single number you can give to predict somebody's general intelligence. Mm. Uh, and uh, there, um, there's a whole debate about how malleable IQ is. Um, I don't know. We can talk about that if you want. Well, I'll just I'll just briefly say, like, I, I had an argument with a Jew one time on Clubhouse about this. And he was like, well, it's not that Jews are genetically smarter. <laughs> it's that we just study so much. And I was like, really? Is that really what you believe? Like, you believe that, like, these Gentiles just are not studying as much as you? And that's why? Like, come on, man. That's right. It's uh, so there are a number of problems with that theory. One is that we've actually tried very intensive interventions to, to get to raise people's IQs by making them study more. And I mean, there's kind of a long story, but basically it doesn't work. Like it, it can work for children because in childhood, IQ is not highly heritable and the IQ tests that are given to children are often more knowledge-based questions, so much easier to, to prepare for. But once you get into adulthood, um, like assuming people are raised in above a lower middle class uh, environment, there isn't um, parenting styles, school, what you learn in school, none of that stuff has much of any effect on your adult IQ. So there's just no, I mean, this is the popular myth about IQ is that uh, you just get educated and then you can, and then that increases your IQ, but it doesn't. Uh, it's not, people will repeat this because that's what they want to believe, but, but it isn't true. And um, we have this phenomenon of population differences uh, in average IQ and the distribution of IQ, some differences in the specific intelligences that different uh, different populations um, uh, have. And uh, so uh, East Asians, for example, are particularly strong in visuospatial reasoning. Right. Jews have lower than average visuospatial reasoning, but... Mm -hmm actually but uh, considerably higher uh, verbal and uh, quantitative ability. Um, and when you're comparing um, the IQs of people in different countries, then you do have to be very cautious uh, because there are factors that affect populations. Uh, so, if you look at African countries with IQs that are supposedly in the 60s or, or, or something like that, that's not an accurate representation of their um, their genetic potential. So, right. but if you look at Africans who are raised in America, um, or African Americans who are say adopt adopted uh, soon after birth by middle class white families, 
then their average IQs will tend to represent the, their the genetic uh, potential. Um, and so there's there's really uh, no no basis for thinking that the IQs of American Jews uh, yeah, are explained by some kind of cultural factor. And if anybody could identify this cultural factor, yeah, you'd you would get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> you would get every Nobel Prize. They would cancel the, all the Nobel Prizes and just give them all to you. Uh, so we we know pe people like they think that we know. Oh, the scientists have explained that it's all environmental. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you would know if they had explained. You would know who made that discovery if it had been made. And the reason you don't know is because no one made that. No, because there is no actual explanation, uh, right. environmental explanation. But but an interesting so so moving. I mean, you mentioned the verbal tilt as opposed to the and the geospatial uh, deficit. Um, and what's interesting that you you mentioned is that um, the higher average IQ is not enough to explain the overrepresentation. So now that we sort of have that out of the way, I wanted to get into just briefly maybe some of the uh, additional factors that might be at play to account for this. Um, you know, one of the claims is that a 110 IQ Gentile might not end up, uh, you know, achieving the same amount or, 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 or accomplishing certain things that a 110 Jew might. And as you go further up the distribution, it gets, you know, even more expressive if you get up to 120, 130, 140 plus, right? Um, so what are some other factors that might explain this? So, uh, people often accuse me of saying that it's all IQ. The only difference between Jews and Gentiles is IQ. Now, I, in my original paper in 2018, I said it's not all IQ and there must be something else because an IQ of 110 or 112 can explain a lot. I, I mean, it's not a huge difference between somebody with an IQ of, of 100 and 110. Yeah. But when you look at the tails, like it, it makes it because you get like much less the further you go out. This is the distribution, guys. If you get shifted, mean, if yeah. you shift the mean, you get a really wide difference at the tail end. Yeah. yeah. So once you start looking at, let's say, Americans with IQs, over like 160 or even even over like 145 especially over 160 like jews are really like they're i can't remember the point at which they become more than 50 percent. i think it's like 170 oh it's very high okay uh so um but the further up you go the higher the proportion of jews so if you're mm. just looking at say people with iqs over 125 where the kind of the elites will be tend to be drawn from uh you know jews are would i something like 15 10 15% uh, okay i did a back of the envelope calculation uh, a little while ago uh, i don't want to get the exact number wrong but something like that but and then Jew, Jewish over-representation becomes higher and higher uh, the more you, you raise the bar. Um, but that, I mean, that doesn't explain all of Jewish over-representation because I mean, in many fields, um, you know, Jews are like a third of, of the leads, even a half, 
uh, in certain academic fields. Um, and it's not plausible to think that all of these people are being drawn from the IQ 170 uh, uh, population. So, well, there aren't that many. <laughs> yeah, that's just, uh, yes, there are not that many to to occupy all the elite positions. So there has to be something else. Now, in the, in the original 2018 paper, which was published in a very mainstream uh, journal, I kind of avoided speculating about this because I didn't think I would be able to get away with it and it would just be dismissed as phrenology. But um, uh, this is a piece of phrenology-type reasoning, which I think is uh, actually quite reasonable. Um, assume, so why did Jews evolve higher IQs? It was probably some combination of selection for Talmudic scholars and uh, business ability ability to, to succeed in white-collar uh, professions. So in order to be a great Talmud scholar, in order to be a great businessman, you need high, above average general intelligence. So that will select for IQ. Um, but that's not all it will select for. Well, because there are other, the IQ isn't everything. Uh, so there are other personality traits. What is it to be a, a great businessman? Does... Uh, uh, does Warren Buffett have an IQ of 200 to, to, to all these people? Um, does Elon Musk have, an, is, is he the richest man because he has an IQ of 200? I'm sure it's high. I'm sure it's high, but that's not, but there are probably people who can score really high on an, there are definitely people who can score even higher on an IQ test. There are these mega high IQ societies where, you know, they can uh, ace any IQ test and yet, um, sometimes they're not successful at all, right? right. Um, they're kind of losers. So Jews would have been selected for IQ, which we know happened because we know the average IQ is higher for Jews. And they would have been selected for whatever personality traits also play a role in success in these areas. So mm. somebody like uh, Woody Allen or uh, these Hollywood types, they're, most of them are not successful because they're IQ geniuses. It's obvious. I mean, I think it's quite clear that um, there's some personality differences. You can tell that there's a Jewish, not everybody instantiates it you know, in such an extreme way, but on average, you can kind of recognize the Jewish personality and every nationality has a kind of, paradigm personality, which um, could have a genetic component, which is then reinforced by cultural forces as well. But there's some genetic basis to that. And also cognitive traits that maybe don't show up on IQ tests. So take chess. I mean, mm. chess is a, a very intellectual activity, but it's actually not as G-loaded as people think. Um, so the great chess players are not, they have above average IQs, but not um, necessarily off the charts. Right, right. Your return on, your return on, on, on chess 
doesn't just keep going up linearly with IQ increases. Well, maybe it, it, it might be, it does, but just there's some other factor that's even more important. Right? Sure, so sure. Gary okay. Kasparov, his IQ was measured at 135. Right. So that's that's right. the 99th percentile. That's high. Right. Yeah. But there are a lot of people. Um, at 135, uh, yeah, who are not many, chess champions. <laughs> many of my, my neighbors, I live in faculty housing at Cambridge. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming many of my neighbors have IQs that are higher than uh, Gary Kasparov, and they're not the greatest chess player of their time. Yeah. Uh, so there's something there's something else. Um and Jews have more of that on average, apparently, and that plays some role in in uh in their chess accomplishment. So I I think we've given people maybe a, a little bit of a an inkling of what some of those other traits might be. Uh they could be personality traits. They could be, I, I don't know, any number of other things. Um, so I wanted to, I guess, move on to the question of Jewish ethnocentrism, um, because this is sort of like another uh, classic argument that gets put forward a lot, which is, you know, Jews are helping out other Jews, and also they are <laughs> acting in ways that... Uh, I guess, harm or disadvantage Gentiles. Um, and there's sort of like two notes that you make in this section of the paper about why that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, it, I mean, you bring up some interesting historical, historical examples as well. You talk about Karl Marx and his statements on Jews, but um, one of them being the high rates of intermarriage and the low fertility um, and so, um, you know, is the basic, the, the gist of this is that Jews just don't seem to be particularly more ethnocentric than other groups, correct? Um, I should preface this by saying that ethnocentrism is a very poorly defined um, construct. Uh, so McDonald and, and his followers throw the word around a lot they say Jews are ethnocentric and then people argue about it and, uh, and then I argue with him and then but none of us really explain what it means um you know is it ethnocentric to you know to try to convert people to Judaism okay members of different races to 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 Judaism is that ethnocentrism or is it ethnocentric to bring in a bunch of Ethiopians who identify as Jews to Israel like um or it's uh a lot of people kind of um are quite wishy-washy about their with their language uh now in uh uh, I think it was the first book, McDonald said that uh, the Jewish group evolutionary strategy has four basic components. And the first component was that it seeks segregation of the Jewish gene pool from surrounding Gentile societies. Mm. So that was McDonald's state, statement uh, that uh, racial purity. So segregating the Jewish gene pool from surrounding Gentile societies. 
Now, defining ethnocentrism in that way, which is, I mean, that what he said is the point of the Jewish group evolutionary strategy. That means that the evolutionary strategy doesn't involve mass intermarriage. Because, I mean, if we just take his word seriously, that doesn't make any sense that the Jewish evolutionary strategy would culminate in mass intermarriage. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he predicted that um, although, and, and so he himself has referred to intermarriage as defection and as something that's contrary to the strategy. And uh, he predicted in 1998 that as time went on, Jews would, although there had been some intermarriage, Jews would find a way to stop to stop it and return to the Jewish group evolutionary strategy. Now, among non-Orthodox Jews who married in the, since 2010, the intermarriage rate has been 72%. And that doesn't include, so that's just reported intermarriage. Mm -hmm. That doesn't include Jews who in, who intermarry with Gentiles who undergo a kind of nominal reform conversion. Right. So that means you you pay the 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 rabbi, uh, and then she says you're Jewish, uh, based on that. Right. Congratulations. So that's not racial purity. Mm. Not, that's not traditional Judaism, obviously. So the intermarriage rate is probably higher than seventy two percent. Liberal Jews, yeah, I mean, there there'll be a certain number of, of uh, Jewish Jewish marriages because you know, these people kind of living in New York, some of the same areas, just randomly, they'll marry each other. But it's really um, liberal Jews just don't care about marrying each other, and they've not created any kind of institutions to stop intermarriage. They just don't care. Mm. And the population is completely disappearing. Like even with I, not that old, but even within my memory, you know, I remember there were a lot of half Jews. And then now, like, yeah, my grandfather's Jewish. So then it will be I'm one eighth Jewish. Uh, you know, someone like Tim Wise. There are some people with quite distant Jewish ancestry who who uh, some liberals who identify as Jewish because that gives them uh, oppression points like Tim Wise, who's one of yeah. the major causes of anti-Semitism in America. Mm. He has one Jewish grandfather. I, I just have to say what, why do you, why is he one of the main causes of anti-Semitism in America? Well, I mean, he's a very obnoxious kind of cartoonish anti-white advocate uh, okay. who says kind of genocidal uh, right, anti-white statements about how the, the you know the days of the white people are numbered, and that's a good yeah. thing. Right. Uh, and then he says, "And I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, and I'm saying this as a Jew." <laughs> and he's his father's father is Jewish, right? Right. So yeah. According to Jewish law, you're Jewish if your mother is Jewish. So, and Tim Weiss doesn't even go to a synagogue. He doesn't practice Judaism. He's just saying that he's Jewish just to kind of push people's buttons as far as I can tell. But anyway, uh, and his wife is not 
Jewish at all. So his kids will be one eighth Jewish. I don't know, maybe they'll. Why is he an imposter? So <laughs> go around. Uh, so, you know, so there's this this element of ethnocentrism, even though it's not well defined, presumably one element of ethnocentrism is you want to be around your ethnic group and the most mm. obvious expression of wanting to be around your ethnic group is marrying somebody from your ethnic group uh, and then producing children who are also members of the group. You know, liberal Jews don't care about that. Now, uh, what about, so Jewish success is often held up as proof of Jewish ethnocentrism, because, well, how could Jews win so many Nobel Prizes unless there was ethnocentrism? So we already talked about that. Um, and that's not a good argument. Uh, and I just say, as a footnote, I'm not saying that ethnocentrism is zero, because right? every group has some ethnocentrism. Uh, and But I'm not saying that there was never a time when a Jew applied to a position in Hollywood and the interviewer said, oh, hey, you know, Bernstein, uh, mm -hmm. uh, cool name, uh, uh, you know, and then Bernstein got the job over, you know, Chris, Chris Willard or, or whatever. Uh, so I'm sure that has happened. It's also happened on the other side, too, right? which we hear about a lot about how Jews were discriminated against. Um, and Jews weren't allowed to belong to Gentile country clubs where they could go and intermarry. Um, uh, so, but there's no reason to think that Jews are particularly ethnocentric compared to other people, um, or that there's they have a genetic disposition to be particularly ethnocentric compared to other people. And mm -hmm. as I've pointed out. If we, if we had this discussion in the 1920s and 1930s, we'd have very different intuitions about who is ethnocentric. Right? We'd, we'd say that Germans are the most ethnocentric people, obviously. And obviously it's innate. It's obviously genetic. Um, we didn't know about DNA at that time. But we, we would have said it's innate. Uh, that's just uh, how they are. They'll never change. And now they're the least ethnocentric people in the world. So there's also a very large environmental component to ethnocentrism. Um, and, you know, very, so the, the people who try to draw um, conclusions about innate uh, ethnic differences in ethnocentrism based on uh, current behavior, I think that's a very questionable thing to do. And anyway, Jews don't, uh, at least liberal Jews don't uh, show much evidence of ethnocentrism. Mm, right, right. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's fair. Obviously, the, the cultural ground underneath us is moving, and I think you're correct that uh, if we were in the early 20th century, we'd be thinking very differently about this. Um, and in some way, I mean, I've we'll get into this a little bit in the next part of the discussion, which is concerning certain aspects of like public policy and ideology, um, which is that, you know, I, I think in some ways the 
and I find this in discussions within certain circles that, uh, you know, even I'm involved in, um, there's a kind of like uh, unwillingness to acknowledge the role that, you know, Western populations have had in inflicting certain policies on themselves. Um, and because they don't want to deal with that, they it, it's easier to just blame Jews. And so that I, that at least comes up quite a bit. Um, and I know I, I don't really want to get into like current day campus politics and discussions around like Israel and Palestine and what's happening there. But you can see that reflected in some of the current events that are happening at the time that we're recording this, where um, there's a lot of Jewish narratives and responses to Jewish narratives coming out regarding the change in the demographic composition of America's universities and the culture in general, and Jews receiving, you know, grief on the back end of that, um, and what led to that. So let's get into now the claims about liberalism, multiculturalism, and immigration. Um, one of the other tenets of McDonald's theory is that Jews were heavily involved in these as intellectual movements, and therefore um, this is a pillar in the group evolutionary strategy. Um, what is your response to the claim that, you know, if you look at, you know, the history of, uh, let's just start with uh, lots of mass immigration, right? Open borders movements. Um, there are a lot of Jews there um, or multiculturalism as, a, as an idea. Um, how do you respond to that? So... Um... In the uh, the papers I've written, so I've looked at the history, uh, for example, of the 1965 uh, Immigration Act mm -hmm. in the United States, which led uh, to um, about mass non-white immigration. And uh, uh, so uh, Emanuel Seller is um, probably the person who, on the JQ side, um, is most associated with this bill and the idea. McDonald claims that he um, he wanted he and the Jewish uh, um, uh, activists who wanted to do away with the quota system, which had limited immigration from uh, various uh, European countries, um, to um, avoid was it. The, the purpose of these quotas, by the way, which mm -hmm. had existed before 1965, was to keep out uh, Southern and Eastern Europeans. Right. It wasn't right. About the Europeans like, they didn't like. <laughs> they said, so uh, South, it didn't apply to other areas of the world. Um, mm -hmm. And the quotas were, were often ignored for various reasons. I mean, it was legislation that just um, was not working at all. And most Americans... And then because of uh, the new sensitivities about race after the um, civil rights movement, um, these policies had become quite unpopular. So most Americans wanted to get rid of the quota system. Uh, but it was more as a symbolic gesture because the people behind the act, they had no idea what the consequence was going to be, especially because they created the possibility of 
uh, family reunification or chain migration. Mm -hmm. So one family member comes and the other family comes. And they didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and this is well documented, in, including in the sources that McDonald himself cites, uh, particularly in Hugh Graham Davis's book, uh, which McDonald treats as authoritative, and then cherry picks some quotes to sound make it sound like Davis is blaming Jews. Um, uh, so this was um, the quota system had to go for various reasons. The Johnson administration uh, had this uh, this as a priority, um, and. Uh, people didn't have experience with um with with what chain migration and what would happen and how there would be a flood of immigrate of immigrants and they were convinced that it wouldn't change the demographic status quo they would you know they'd bring in you know a hundred thousand they they naturalize a hundred thousand um you know chinese and um There'd be some maybe some small change in immigration, but they just couldn't imagine what the result would be, and especially what the result of exponential, you know, growth would be. Because mm -hmm. people are not good at thinking about exponential right. growth. Right. Uh, and I, 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 there's an interesting illustration illustration of this um, a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago. I tweeted about how um, uh, Japan now has a very large immigrant population, especially among the younger generation. In Tokyo, especially, it's like, I think one in 12 um, people in Tokyo, young people in Tokyo is foreign-born, something like that. So then I, I I tweeted, you know, this is going to catch up with them. Uh, yeah. It's going to, like, um, in a few generations, Japan's going to look very different. And then a lot of people who I'm, I'm quite sure I, I'm on the kind of JQ right. So first they were accusing me of celebrating this fact. Right. <laughs> because I said, this is the fact. They said, oh, that means you, the Jew, of course you want that. Uh, but I, I didn't say, in fact, I, I, would, I would suggest Japan, if they're, if they're listening, I suggest the Japanese think carefully before they do this. But mm. I'm just saying that's the fact. But people are saying it's only, you know, it's only a small number. Uh, so even these people who I'm sure many of whom would say that Emmanuel Seller knew exactly what was going to happen, they, they're seeing the exact same situation. It's actually, um, uh, even more, much more obvious in the case of Japan than it was in Seller's time in 1965. And they can't see what's going to happen, mm -hmm. uh, as a result of exponential growth of the, of the foreign population in Japan. But Japan is it's gonna be way less Japanese. And you know, as time goes on, eventually it's gonna it's just it's not gonna be the same the same country. So you see how even now people just can't understand uh how how this works. Now eventually um replacing white people became a goal, right? So now that's considered a good thing in itself. But mm -hmm. that was not the case at the time when these when these policies were made. And so now maybe uh, uh, I mean, to the, the extent to which open borders um, 
is uh, is maintained be specifically because politicians have the goal of changing the demographics um, or to the extent to which there are other other reasons, just inertia uh, or business interests, um, a um, kind of desire to avoid confrontation. And these are all factors that are contributing to open borders. Um, I, I think that certainly a lot of uh, politicians who are responsible for making and enforcing immigration law are aware that immigrants tend to vote a certain way and that colors their attitudes toward immigration. I'm quite sure mm -hmm. that's the case. Um, but we didn't start down this road, uh, at least in America, because Jews or anyone else specifically wanted to make America non-white. There isn't an, an iota of evidence to support McDonald's claim that they uh, that that was what happened. If you as I discuss in, in the final paper, still no evidence for a Jewish group of evolutionary strategy. McDonald completely misrepresents some quote uh, or some, some fact about Seller to make it sound like he knew that or that he wanted to make America non-white. Completely untrue. I give the sources. I give the original quote in the paper. You can go mm. and see it. People can go and see it for themselves. Now, in Europe... Um, you know, Jews have generally been far less influential in recent European history than they have been in America. I mean, Jewish influence is strongest in, I mean, Israel one, America two, yeah, maybe like UK's third, a dis, but you're starting to get the distant third, really. Um, you know, in countries like uh, Sweden. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right. They're like, you, you, you count the Jews in the thousands. Um, so there's this. So I know I, I have to say that. So everyone's going to say, well, what about Barbara Lerner Specter? Uh, right. So there's this. I think originally American woman who moved to Sweden and she started this kind of book club for a few old few uh, women to talk about politics uh, and she made a statement that's replayed constantly about how Jews are playing a role in uh, uh, the transformation of Europe or, or, or something like to that effect. Yeah. Some random woman making this statement, which is held up as proof of the conspiracy um, is, is uh, ridiculous. It would be recognized as ridiculous in any other context. Um, if I, show an example of a random white woman saying, admitting that America is a white supremacy society. Uh, these same people who see Barbara Lerner Specter as the, the spokeswoman for the Jewish conspiracy obviously wouldn't accept my evidence that America is a white supremacy because this one white person said so. And in fact, I could find... 50 million white people who would say that America is a white supremacy and even 50 million wouldn't make it so. Now, and the other uh, uh, ridiculous argument made is that Sweden is under the thumb of the Bonnier family. So they own a media company in Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, but 
the Bonniers started intermarrying a couple of generations ago. Now, one of the largest shareholders in the Bonnier group is a bishop in the Church of Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have no interest in Jewish uh, matters, and they're not even involved in running the company. So, okay, but so people who want to uh, who want to to blame the Jews will will continue to do so. But those are the facts, and. Sweden is more liberal. They're more in favor of mass immigration than anyone else, much right. more than America. So, uh, and there are other countries which are similarly more woke, more open borders than America is, where Jews have way less influence or basically none at all. So, so I think this leads us into sort of the next component of this, which is a kind of broader cultural trends um, in that, you know, uh, McDonald also focuses on Jews' roles in being influential in uh, in in liberalism, just as a as a political ideology, uh, as well as blank slateism as a sort of um, pedagogy or or theory of human nature. Um, and the objections here are are somewhat similar. They're almost a, they're almost. Uh, the same as the objections to the mass immigration and the multiculturalism, which is that, yes, if you look at these movements, you can find a lot of prominent Jews involved in them, especially uh, some of which, well, first of all, there's not always Jews, you know, it, as the originators of these movements with liberalism, you bring up John Locke and you bring up John Stuart Mill. Um, but even, and, and with, behaviorism and, and blank slateism you you talk about bf skinner so these are all gentiles um but the 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 broad brush of this is that one there are gentiles at the at the fore of all of these movements as well often the most prominent people or the originators of them uh are non-jewish and then two if you look at parallel developments or opposing movements of the same strain You'll also find Jews there. And so it just doesn't add up that they would be to blame for these particular uh, intellectual currents. Yeah, it's not science. Uh, you know, it's like uh, McDonald argues that the coin is biased toward heads. And he flipped yeah. it a hundred times and it came up heads 55 times and tails you know 45 times and he said look here's a heads 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 55 times and i come along and i say yeah but what about all these tails so well, i'm not talking about the tails i'm just talking about the heads look at all these heads and this is very similar to what he how he's responded he said, why are you bringing up all these Gentiles? I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the Jews. And when I point out also Jews on the other side, he said, I'm not talking about those Jews. I'm talking about the Jews doing something I don't like. I'm talking about the liberal Jews. What he, he says, I'm talking about where the power is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's the same thing. And my I, definition I, of power is where the Jews are. So the definition of power is when something bad happens. So basically... 
something bad happens. The procedure is this. Something bad happens that McDonald doesn't like, right? From McDonald's perspective is bad. So there's something like multiculturalism or, or open borders. So there were some Jews who supported these things, whether they knew about what the consequences would be or not, right? So he said, look at, look at these Jews. Now, okay, but in order to establish that there's a pattern, a pattern of Jews supporting this for some nefarious reason, you can't just show that there were some Jews involved, right? You have to show they were, uh, they were involved in this and then not in other movements with different goals and uh, that, um, that they're, they had special motivations that you were attributing to them and that there weren't Gentiles who were even more influential, uh, which is certainly the case when it came to race denial. I mean, that was race denial had been really the orthodoxy among liberal Gentiles for, for many generations before Boaz came along. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not saying Boaz wasn't influential and that he didn't play some role in promoting these ideas, but he was promoting the Gentile ideas. I mean, Locke said in 1690 that I, I, was, I was very, so I quoted um, Locke's statement of blank slatism, slatism, but it was very unfortunate that I didn't quote him specifically denying race differences because he did that in 1690. So was, that was very unfortunate. Mill also, I found this quote after the paper was published, uh, specifically denying uh, race differences. All this stuff happened before Boaz, um, in Locke's case, quite a long time before Boaz, uh, 200 years before Boaz. So, and then the... Uh, now, Boaz, I think, was born in uh, 1858, if I remember correctly. And um, Theodore Waits was sort of the the modern anthropological, uh, uh, wrote the, 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 um, the modern scientific uh, argument for race denial. And that was published in 1859. So Boaz was not responsible for that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Boaz picked up these ideas really from the uh, the liberal German intellectual environment. Boaz um, identified as a German. He didn't that he thought he was ethnically German. He strongly identified with German uh, the German race and with German culture. Uh, supported Germany during World War One for nationalistic reasons, um, at at great risk to his own career. Uh, and even when Hitler came to power, he wrote an open letter as a German and as someone of German descent. He made a comment about how he was disappointed in this return to barbarism, uh, but still. Say, say, identifying as a German. Um, and behavior. So McDonald just never mentions behaviorism. Behaviorism was the most influential movement in psychology in the 20th century. Uh, 
and that was a Gentile movement. Um, it was the, the the major figures were John Watson and B. F. Skinner, and that said, there are no different. Uh, there's no innateness. Nothing is innate. We're all blank slates. That uh, 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 you know, there's the famous quote: "Give me a man or whatever any back, whatever his parents are, whatever their race is, whatever their profession, and I can raise him to be whatever I want." That was John Watson. Watson, yes, not Jewish. Uh, and that was more influential than Freudianism. Um, but um, yeah, so McDonald just ignores it uh, and it ignores the fact that this uh, these ideas became accepted really before Jews became really prominent in academia and in the world of ideas. And uh, uh, then he he just picks a moment in history, and then cherry picks some some individuals who, yes, they were influential in some cases. Boaz was influential, but highly misleading to shine the spotlight on him and say it was all him, and then yeah. make up a, a story about his motivations, which is not based in reality. Well, so I'm glad that you brought up the um, the case of the Jewish German during Hitler's rise to power, uh, because the next sort of phase of this is we're going to talk about anti-Semitism. Um, anti-Semitism is sort of the undercurrent of the whole conversation in a way. Um, and, you know... One of the interesting claims here, and, and I hinted earlier at Jewish involvement in various political movements, is, again, that the, Jew, the, the Jews have been involved in all kinds of political movements, um, you know, in anti-Semitic circles. They like to blame Jews for, like, socialism or communism or, you know, as you said earlier, whatever I don't like, basically. Um, but it turns out, you know, there's a lot of Jews involved in, like, libertarianism and anarchism and even fascism um and so you bring up the interesting this interesting historical example which i didn't know about which was the jewish involvement in uh in italian fascism specifically um under mussolini um but this was considered a jewish movement it was fascism was originally the idea of combining nationalism and socialism mm -hmm. which had been seen as impossible to reconcile yeah was the idea of a Jewish woman, Margarita Sarfati. Yes. Um, and the, the idea for the March on Rome, which led to Mussolini being appointed uh, to, to power, that was Margarita Sarfati's idea. She's a, a Jewish woman who was... Uh, is a fascinating story about... She was one of the most influential women, even the most influential figures of the 20th century, uh, really the um, the intellectual force and political force behind uh, the rise of fascism in Italy, which of course inspired um, fascism in Germany. Uh, but she, so she's often described just as a kind of footnote, as a Mussolini's mistress. 
So she was Mussolini's mistress, but they left out all the interesting parts where she came up with the idea for fascism and and uh, she was also wealthy and she she financed she financed Mussolini at crucial moments. Uh, her son, which she had with uh, her Jewish husband, uh, was the first martyr of the uh, fascist cause. As I describe in the paper, they were very um, about fascists. And, uh, so after um, the uh, Italian, Italians, after Mussolini turned anti-Semitic in, uh, after 1936, uh, they, Margarita got written out of history because the fascists, they couldn't admit that or their ideas came from a Jewish, a Jew and a woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was totally unacceptable for them after you know, Mussolini had become allied with Hitler. And uh, then Margarita Sarfati ended up fleeing for her life. Uh, Mussolini looked the other way. Uh, then her, uh, her uh, sister and brother-in-law were then killed in the Italian Holocaust. Uh, so she fled to um, South America and returned to Italy uh, some years later. But so the fascists ignored her. They wrote her out of history. The feminists, although she was you know, one of the, the most important women in history, uh, feminists are not so excited to say, oh, well, a woman invented fascism. And for the same reason, Jews are not going to claim her. Oh, that's not something really to be proud of, right? From yeah. the Jewish perspective. So um, that's why you've never heard of her. But um, she and many of the, um, the whole journalism establishment and many academics who were very much on the right in Italy at that time, uh, and generally supportive of fascism, uh, very much integrated in the fascist regime and in the fascist bureaucracy. Uh, and their, their loyalty was not seriously questioned by psychologically uh, normal people. Um, so there were some like anti-Semites, obviously, because that anti-Semitism is a thing that attracts a certain certain percentage of people but basically no serious people were accusing the jews of disloyalty on a on a large scale and the jewish uh, population was seen as supportive of fascism and this is admitted even by the anti-semites in the Mussolini's regime as i quote them i quote their their words they said jews have been good fascists um, but they learned a lesson about what might happen when they support these right-wing regimes. And so, you know, the JQers who are upset, why don't Jews support white nationalism? Um, Jews did have a history of supporting nationalist 
movements, and not only in Italy, but Jews were also known as uh, German nationalists. There were, and, and many Jews certainly uh, intermarried in Germany. Many Germans have uh, distant Jewish ancestry. Uh, there in uh, Hungary at one time there were uh, quite a lot of uh, Magyar nationalists among Jews, but especially German nationalists among Jews. That was um, that was a big thing, and uh, then it went very wrong for them. So, yeah, that experience does have some influence over the, that cultural memory about what might happen if you, you know, support nationalist movements. So that's that is um, something people need to understand mm. uh, when they're explaining Jewish political behavior. Right, right, and, and I think even Hitler. There's a quote from Hitler in the book or maybe it's a, a paraphrase or something uh, that's attributed to him where he even says that <laughs> if he had, if he had accepted the Jews, they would have helped him too. Um, yeah, he said, if I, this was a, a quote I saw in uh, Albert Lindemann's book, Esau's Tears, which is a very good book. Um, his, Hitler said, if I had just held out my little finger, I would have had the whole lot swarming around me referring to Jews. Hmm. So he had, Basically, Jews had to be chased away. Uh, otherwise, they would have been Nazis too. Right. So so one of the takeaways of this, um, I guess, recounting uh, uh, of the Jewish history of involvement in various national and right-wing political movements is that basically, until they become explicitly anti-Semitic, um, they tend to have a lot of Jews involved. And it's really just that, you know, Jews have learned that uh, if someone tells you they don't want you around, maybe they might mean it. Um, you know, th that's basically the only reason why you, you don't see a lot of Jews affiliated with these um, political machinations. Look, people tell me on the right. So I'm, I'm not a white nationalist. Um, uh, my, my wife is Korean, but uh, it would be quite strange to call myself a white nationalist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people think that I'm white nationalist or that, and that they make a point of telling me to get lost because right? mm -hmm. I'm a Jew and Jews shouldn't be white nationalists. And then they turn around and say, how come Jews don't support white nationalism? Okay. Like, um, maybe that's the answer. Like, that's, or yeah. that's one of the answers, but one of the factors, right? Jews don't. Mm -hmm. And as I've pointed out many times, there's one major white nationalist organization in the United States that is officially non-anti-Semitic, which is American Renaissance. And probably most of the more prominent supporters of American Renaissance have been Jewish. And I cite the fact that four out of 10 Speakers at the first American Renaissance conference were Jewish. Many speakers at subsequent conferences were Jewish. But um, as you know, anti-Semitism was always, you know, kind of bubbling beneath the surface. And there were some famous cases were kind of spilled out into the open. And um, a number of Jews have said that they they distance themselves from American Renaissance because of 
anti-Semitism. So then people are still saying, well, American Renaissance isn't anti-Semitic, so why aren't there more Jews? First, there are a lot of Jews. Even now, there are still Jews associated with American Renaissance. But you're going to... The, the criticism is, is, I think, disingenuous. If you, if you hate Jews and then... And every time a Jew tries to support you, you tell him to get lost and say, why don't you support me? Like, that's not really something to... Put a, putting them in an impossible situation. <laughs> uh, um, so I, I wanted to sort of, uh, I guess, leave off with this note that you have it's not really a note, but this passage on on anti-Semitism and, and the cause of anti-Jewish sentiment. It's important to preface that, and as just a, a disclaimer for the entire discussion that we've had so far, um, I haven't spoken to Kevin McDonald yet, but it's important to, to, to note that neither of us have claimed in this discussion that Kevin McDonald is an anti-Semite. And in fact, the question of whether or not he's anti-Semitic is irrelevant to refuting the claims that he's making. Um, but I would say that uh, if you're trying to understand anti-Semitism as a sentiment and as a concept, um, you know, or you're trying to fight anti-Semitism and you're genuinely trying to fight anti-Semitism, not just like going around calling people anti-Semites all day, um, then it's useful to actually address the arguments, the substance of the arguments that uh, people that, um, are anti-Semitic like to adopt, even if they're only for their own uh, convenience. Um, so, uh, you know, do you think that addressing uh, McDonald's points in, in this sort of step-by-step -step way um, could sort of help deal with, with is it meant to help deal with anti-Semitic sentiment? Um, is it just that, you know, if you can provide better explanations, um, a lot of this will go away. Uh, how do you think about the relationship between these claims and anti-Semitism? So in uh, my first article in 2018, which was published in Human Nature, um, one of the, uh, the peer reviewers wanted me to end by saying that Kevin McDonald is anti-Semitic and that his theory is basically the expression of anti-Semitism. And that really bothered me. I absolutely refused to do that. And then as a compromise, I said something else about him not representing evolutionary psychology. I should have pushed back against that more because uh, I thought that was not the way that I wanted to end the paper. Um, but I, I was careful to avoid calling him anti-Semitic because that is irrelevant to the, the truth of the theory, right? Whether so, McDonald likes to say that I'm a Jewish ethnic activist or something. I, even if it were true, again, it doesn't doesn't matter, uh, right? So his he could be an anti-Semite. I could be a Jewish ethnic uh, activist, um, uh, but we should he should make his argument, and then I'll make my argument. That's the correct way to have the discussion. However, um, McDonald has held up as evidence for the Jewish group evolutionary strategy, the fact that Jews are not supporting his movement and his brand of white nationalism. So 
my theory is that Jews avoid overtly anti-Semitic movements. And you, that's just for obvious reasons. You, you don't need a group, group evolutionary strategy to explain that. People avoid movements that are against themselves. So, okay, so if McDonald is saying, why aren't there Jews in his white nationalist movement, then whether his white nationalist movement is anti-Semitic now becomes a scientific question relevant to testing my hypothesis versus his hypothesis. So in the paper that we were talking about, I do look at the evidence for, is McDonald an anti-Semite? Uh, and could this explain why Jews don't want to be um, to be associated with him? And, and people can look at the evidence, which, I, which I've documented. I think the answer is clearly yes. There's not no question about it. I, he said quite openly that he considers Jews enemies, he, that their interests are different from uh, those of, uh, of white Europeans, that Jews should not be allowed to have um, leadership positions in his movement, that their their role is to, quote, serve us. Uh, so, then he, so he says this, and then he turns around and says, well, how come there are no Jews in this movement? Must be because there's a Jewish group evolutionary strategy. Yeah, I... I uh, I think that's ridiculous. Um, uh, as to um, you know what will my my work accomplish vis-a-vis anti-Semitism? Uh, so in the 2018 paper, I gave a number of reasons why I was taking on this topic, uh, why I thought it was important, and one of them is I mean the first the obvious reason is or maybe not obvious to everybody, but to me, is this a, it's an interesting scientific question. Uh, we should be trying to uh, test evolutionary approaches to understanding uh, group behavior. Uh, Jews act in, in unusual ways in some respects. So we should try every, every method we can to understand that. And McDonald has spent a lot of time um, you know, developing this theory about Judaism being a group evolutionary strategy, it can't be dismissed a priori. So maybe that's that could be part of the story. So we should begin by looking at his theory and seeing if it holds water. Uh, and if it doesn't, then this discussion could be the basis of further uh, scientific analysis, which unfortunately hasn't hasn't really happened as much as I hoped, but. Well, we'll see. There's uh, hopefully people will take this up. Now, in in addition, McDonald has some political influence. At the time, I referred to the alt right, which doesn't really exist anymore. But at that time, the alt right looked like that was on the rise um, before it imploded. Uh, and then, for for so for political reasons, we should we should understand whether these claims being made. These politically influential claims are true, and um, so yes, I. I mean, I, I ideally, I would hope to inspire people to take this scientific question seriously of understanding Jewish behavior, and uh, people who have wrong. Um, theories of Jews and who have drawn political uh, implications from those wrong theories, I would, I would like them to have uh, true theories and draw, you know, reality-based conclusions. Uh, but I have 
realistic, you know, expectations about whether that's going to happen. Because, you know, as I've argued, uh, a lot of anti-Semitism um, isn't really rooted in a rational place. So, rational argument is not going to uh, change people's minds. Right, but it might it might help uh, close some of the easier avenues to an anti-Semitic worldview. Um, because like, so I, I brought this up. I was just, we were talking about anti-Semitism in one of my, in a group chat the other day. And I mentioned that, you know, someone was comparing it to, uh, we were talking about why there are Catholic Marxists. I don't know why there are Catholic Marxists. I haven't looked into it very in depth, but someone was comparing it to anti-Semitism and I said, well, the problem with anti-Semitism is, or with making that comparison is that like Catholicism and Marxism are sort of like very large um, ideological constructs that have like a lot of weight to them and a lot of history and, and, and do sort of form a kind of worldview. But anti-Semitism is usually um, either a set of like very generic claims that people are disgruntled with or when it becomes a kind of like totalizing worldview, it ends up just being this morass of, um, of, of, of like very specious, you know, ideas about how the world actually works. And so to me, it's, it's not coherent enough to constitute an ideology um, because it's, it's not, there's no attempt at like system, systemization. And so um, it seems that, if you can refute some of the particular claims uh, that are made, that the more generic arguments, like for example, the causes of Jewish overrepresentation in intellectual fields, um, that might actually close the door to further, you know, going down like an anti-Semitic rabbit hole. Yeah, I I, I wrote the art. The, I did this work because I I thought that it would be you know of interest to people and and uh, useful for people. So I hope that people will, you know, will use it. And, and I think that, you know, as I mentioned, I, I myself had been open-minded about, you know, McDonald kind of uh, McDonald's ideas. So um, I, I completely understand why people would want to explore this issue. And um, so people should look at both sides. Right? Uh, mm. Now there are be some people who, are open-minded and capable of uh, assessing the evidence. I believe those people will generally um, uh, come to a conclusion that's much closer to mine than McDonald's. Uh, and my papers are there, are uh, available for them. A lot of people um, who are not either willing or able to examine the evidence and will will uh, choose a position that resonates with them for emotional reasons. And then um, they obviously are not going to listen to me. So, or, or McDonald. I and mean, a lot of these people don't read McDonald either. A lot of McDonald fan, they think they know what he said. Uh, and they just, it's actually not what he said. But so, I mean, it's not, I'm not a, um, I'm not a politician. It's not my, my role, I don't see my role as changing as many minds as possible, right? As a scholar, my 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 role is to make the argument available and uh, uh, try to say what I think is true and, and justified.
Hmm. So given that this is sort of uh, perhaps the final chapter in this debate, um, I just wanted to ask, like, do you think that the work as it stands now is sufficient to leave as is, or are you hoping that others take up the mantle and continue this engagement? Um, I just wanted to briefly see if you would like to reflect on the, um, you know, because you've had this long engagement with McDonald's work. um, And as you said at the beginning of this discussion, he wrote, was writing these in the mid nineties. And so um, in a way, this has been an ongoing uh, discourse for, you know, 30 years now, um, nearly. So how do you think about, you know, the state of the discussion? Although there was a big gap between yeah. 1998 and uh, <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, some people, not not many, but there are you know, a couple of people who've done some uh, some more work. There's a Substack writer, uh, Will Viver, who has um, cataloged uh, large numbers of er- factual errors in uh, in some of uh, McDonald's work. Um, which uh, I think is uh, quite interesting for people who are specifically interested uh, in McDonald's version of the JQism. Uh, I would, so I think um, besides the uh, specific study specifically of uh, Jews, I think uh, the study of Jews should be a branch of a larger science of race or, or population uh, differences in behavior. So um, that's also something that I've advocated for, uh, recognizing that groups behave differently and there are all sorts of reasons for that and pe- that there should be uh, an honest sociological discussion of that. Uh and and so then yeah, Jews will just be one of the groups that are that are analyzed from that perspective. Uh, and I mean, as, to me, the, these are you know the most interesting questions in the world. Uh, the most interesting, the most interesting questions in social science. What are the causes of uh, individual differences in behavior? Group differences in behavior. Uh, how do groups interact with each other? And uh, the current work being done on these topics is, you know, highly ideological, um, often not really scientific at all. Uh, mm. So, I I am going to continue advocating for a, a genuine scientific evolution informed evolution and um, genetic informed approach to these questions. Right. And in the, the interaction between biology and culture in producing these outcomes. These are very poorly understood phenomena and not studied, seriously studied by, um, by mainstream scholars. And uh, yes, I think it's a shame. Well, Nathan Kaufness, um, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, and we'll see if uh, if we can get uh, Kevin McDonald to respond. I appreciate you taking the time. Wonderful. Thank you.